Welcome to the Melius Performance Podcast. I hope you like that music. Uh, trying to change it a little bit. That one there is dedicated to our long-time listener, no-time caller, Matt Roach. Matt, you deserve the call-out. Thank you for your feedback. We're trying to change the music. If you'd like to buy us a corporate license, Matt, I'd appreciate that as well. I'll send you my bank details. All right, in this episode, we are talking to Mr. Ben Hutchinson, who is in the middle of his PhD. Now, Ben is a very experienced guy in the area of safety science. Ben has uh, probably, I don't know, about 15 years or more experience in this area. He's been around for a while. Um, and so he's uh, he's quite experienced in it. Ben has had roles from being a combat engineer in the military to uh, working as a personal trainer, working as a safety manager, and is currently working as a HSE manager whilst undertaking his PhD as well. Uh, Ben's education ranges from Bachelor of Applied Science, Human Movement, postgraduate degrees in exercise science and rehabilitation, graduate diploma in occupational health and safety management, masters of occupational health and safety, and Ben is currently undertaking his PhD or doctor of philosophy in safety science. And Ben is investigating, or what he's looking at, is seeking to understand how in high-risk environments we build up false assurances and false senses of confidence, and he calls this fantasy planning. In our safety systems, plans, controls, and practices which are not aligned to the actual or likely degree of harm and vulnerability. So what I often liken this to is, you know, we have a great system that sits on a shelf. It's great for auditing. It looks really nice and pretty, but that's not actually what's happening out there on the shop floor. And it's adding no benefit or no value to uh, people undertaking these uh, high-risk activities. So in this episode, myself and Ben discussed this um, at length. We delve into some different examples. Gets quite nuanced in some areas as well. Uh, I think if you have a background or an interest in occupational health and safety, this is definitely an episode for you. We don't talk a lot about kind of sleep and nutrition and so on, but we talk a lot about safety systems, the design, the deployment, the issues around them, um, and potential pathways forward from this. Ben also has a great understanding of the current literature around this, and uh, I learned a lot of this episode, and I hope you do too. Um, as always, you can follow us at meliasconsulting.com.au over on Twitter at meliasperform. Uh, keep an eye on the website as well. I've got lots of blogs, lots of papers that are coming out recently, lots of information, scientific breakdowns, and much more. And we're hoping to offer more and more here in 2021. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. You got any feedback, especially on the music? Uh, email me at ian.dunigan at meliasconsulting.com.au hit me up on um, LinkedIn as well um, and maybe Twitter to a lesser extent I don't really interact on Twitter too many trolls and lunatics on there so I'll try and stay off that and just post information to share uh, other than that let's jump into this episode Welcome back to Melius Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by Ben Hutchinson. Ben, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. We had uh, some audio issues there before recording this, but we've uh, we've become IT specialists in the last 20 minutes. Well, you have, Ben, and you have it all sorted now. Yep, so do. So, yeah. So, perseverance and patience is the key when it comes to uh, audio inputs and outputs. <laughs> or, or, just, or just winging it. We're just winging it, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm doing here. So, Ben, where are you based today? Where are you joining us from? Uh, my office in uh, Brisbane. Brisbane, yeah. 
we do have some international listeners. So when you say the office, it won't register as a country when they put it into Google Maps if they're looking where you are. So <laughs> we have to be quite quite clear. Uh, so join us from Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. So we're recording this um, in December. Um, things have started to open back up and in, in COVID land. So most people now can travel in now to Queensland. Even WA opened up this week as well. Um, it's a strange so, sense to be returning to it. You know, like some sense of normality, but it's the new normal, I think. Yeah, I don't like that, the new normal. I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't want that to be the new normal. <laughs> I wanted to go back to what it was like. <laughs> In saying that, I'm not missing uh, traveling on a plane um, for work yeah. anyway, maybe for holidays, but not for work. <laughs> so, Ben, um, I've known you for a number of years. Um, I think we've only ever spoken on the phone, but we've known each other from probably back around 2011, 12, so on, when I was working in a mining company. Uh, we connected through um, LinkedIn and on the phone in regards to this kind of you know safety and risk management stuff. We had a number of conversations on the phone, um, but it would be good to get kind of an overview of your, of your background, where you grew up, educational background, just to give us a bit of context before we delve into your uh, PhD yeah. topic that you're currently working on. I guess it sort of demonstrates that I don't leave a lasting impression, but we have actually met in real life. Have we? Uh, it was at a, yeah, it was at a conference in Perth, but uh, anyway, that's all good. Did we? Where, um, did, where did we? No, you've no, you got to stop there. you got to remind me because <laughs> I tell you why. I'm not, I'm not so worried about your feelings. I'm more worried about me potentially having a brain fart where I can't remember meeting each other. It was at a fatigue uh, workshop in Perth. I can't remember the year, maybe 2011 or 2012. Um, but yeah, we actually met there. At, Did uh, we? God, yeah. that's racking my brains now. <laughs> so it wasn't the International Council of Minerals and Metals group, was it? No, or was I, it? I really can't remember. Oh, I know which one it was now. It was the one down in Fremantle, wasn't it? No, I think it was in Perth. Oh, we interrupt this short podcast for Ian to have um, a consultation with a hypnotherapist to try and remember. <laughs> my God, it, 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 it was like close to ten years ago. I thought it was down in Fremantle then, if that was the one. I can't remember oh, one in Perth. Anyway. So, right. um, there you go. I need to be more mindful. There you go, Ben. There all you right, go. So, Sorry, proceed. <laughs> so, a background on me, I work in uh, health and safety as a health and safety manager. Mostly been involved in construction, well, oil and gas construction, pipeline construction, chemical industry but with a lot of heavily involvement in construction so construction's been involved in most of my professional career i started in exercise physiology but i never actually worked in that industry i went pretty much finished at uni i'd worked as a personal trainer and uh, fitness and other things like that and uh as soon as i finished university i went pretty much into fatigue into fatigue risk management uh particularly interested in human factors but you know, human factors is such a vast area. Mm. My niche was very much fatigue risk management. So I worked, consulted through industry there. And I guess like a lot of safety professionals, I kind of fell into health and safety from there. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last you know, 10 years. It's interesting, isn't it, Ben, when you talk about exercise physiology, there's so many exercise physiologists not working in exercise physiology. Like the array of people that have studied this area, but then move into non-related fields. So like for you, for example, at least you're in a somewhat related field in, in the health area. I know people that have done exercise physiology end up becoming, you know, police officers. Yeah. Uh, my own wife actually did 
human movement, sports science back in. Oh, she wanted she wanted allow me to sit a year, so I won't say. <laughs> but now she works like in operational readiness for like rail in a mining company. Uh, you know, there's so many different ways that people go from exercise physiology. There's another guy who did a PhD in it, but now is a train driver. Like it's such um it's such an interesting degree, but so many people kind of do it and then go, oh, that was okay, and then move on. Why do why do you think that is? Has it got to do with the industry, the pay? What is it? Yeah, I think it's a few factors. You know what? On that point, I, I can recall now when I did my, I did human movement, so it was a four-year degree, and hardly anyone in that course actually wanted to do physiology. They wanted to become physios or they wanted to use this as a, a bridging course to go into somewhere else. Yeah. Um, that was just my view, but I, I didn't find a lot of people that were really genuinely interested in that field. And I think part of it is just the opportunities in the industry. Like a lot of the opportunities uh, you could probably argue that you're a glorified personal trainer. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I started as a PT, but what I'm saying is for three or four years of your life, invest in university to do pretty much what you're doing before. I think when it comes to injury rehab, they absolutely are second fiddle to physios. Like that is their bread and butter. So you don't have that real depth of knowledge around uh, in injury rehab for musculoskeletal. Um, for the physiology side, absolutely. I mean, that is what exercise physiologists do quite a lot of. Um, but then quite a number of people go into, um, they do their, their courses so they can do, you know, the monitoring for um, ECGs and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I think there's a few factors. I just think that there's not a lot of opportunities in that, in that industry that really drives people. And, and it absolutely is a bridging course for physio and OT and those sort of courses. Yeah. A lot of people are interested in. So for me, it was pretty similar. I was originally interested in getting into physio. Um, but then just through chance, you know, I went into, I found sort of my niche, which, which was human factors, and I just haven't looked back. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people do um, exercise physiology, human movement, that sort of area, and then go in and do medicine or yep. go and do honors, go do PhD. See a lot of people in the sleep world actually have done this undergrad and then moved into, um, into sleep science, more like kind of clinical medical settings, you know, being a sleep scientist in a hospital or in a, in a laboratory in a university. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. I think yeah. what it does do um, really well, though, it gives you that good grounding in science. And I think one thing about exercise physiology, like a lot of the biological sciences is it's so it's so multifaceted and it's so um, prone to contributing factors that it gives you a real sense of like not one size fits all. And the classic one is like nutrition where people go, this diet works. Yeah. And like when you know the human body, you kind of roll your eyes and go, really? that works and everybody's so different, you know, like, you know, you talk about the scale of there's people like me and you, Ben, and then there's people like the rock, you know, but we're all humans, but there's a vast, a vast difference yeah, yeah. between like myself and, and, and the rock, for example, and the wrestler, you know, just as there's a vast difference between myself and Donald Trump. But anyway, um, that's, that's humans. So, um, that, yeah, <laughs> that's the way it works, I suppose. Um, so Ben, um, recently, well, a few years now, you've been working on your PhD. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Ben, was because you've been very, um, you've been very, um, I suppose, active on LinkedIn. You're posting lots of really good information. You're kind of breaking down some recent papers that come out. You're, you're kind of, you know, putting up direction there for the industry and so on. But you've been working on this PhD for a few years. I remember we spoke about, you know, potential PhD topics for you a number of years ago um, yeah. over the phone. Um, 
So where did you land and, and what's the focus of your PhD currently? Yeah, so I guess I've uh, working in health and safety, like many practitioners, I've become a little bit jaded, I guess, is probably one way to yeah. put it around the work that we do. And I think uh, Dave Proven, who I recommend you get on the, the show to talk to, um, his work's been really good in, in sort of in exploring what is it health and safety people do. Like what's a, what's a, what does a common day or a week look like for us? What do we believe about what we do, the impacts that we have? Um, and I guess his work's been really good in clarifying some of those details. And I, when I think about it, you know, I think about the work that we do, we tend to rely on a lot of systems and we tend to fall back. Like our fallback position is there's a procedure, there's a system. And, I, you know, I saw it when I started in fatigue risk management. You know, we had FRMSs and there's always this assumption around what systems can do and what we believe systems are supposed to do. But in comparison, we don't really have a whole lot of mechanisms to actually measure and, and uh, baseline what the systems are doing. And we don't have a lot of feedback loops, I, I don't believe. So that's what sort of drove me into my topic or at least my, my research focus around sort of this disparity between what we believe systems can actually do versus what they are doing. So um, my PhD is really sought to explore that, those sort of factors. And uh, one of the key, I guess, theses that we have is um, some of our safety management systems and practices and beliefs can actually increase a level of risk rather than decrease it, which I think sort of runs contrary to what, you know, we typically believe, like we would put a, a permit to work system in place because we believe that it'll help us manage the issue. But what we argue and what we've actually found across a, a range of major accidents is there may be some very specific instances where a permit to work system can actually decouple um, our practices and beliefs from, from safety, where it increases our potential for harm rather than decreases it. Um, so I've really sought to sort of uh, canvas and explore these types of factors that can contribute to, uh, I, I guess, a decrease in safety. All right. So then before we delve into that, can you, we maybe just describe, or let's, let's start with a bit of a definition about what is an actual system? How would you describe a system? Because so, some people might be sitting there going, a safety system, um, you know, what, what exactly is that? And, and actually, a comment on that before I even start that is because I was at a coffee shop recently, and this kind of underpins this, this question. And a guy said to me, um, the, uh, one of the, the, the guy I think he owned it, ran or whatever, and he said, oh, what do you work in? He says, you, you come here some mornings, like at odd times. So I said, oh, you know, I work in in consultancy in the area of health and safety. Oh, he goes, one of them. <laughs> and I went, huh? And I just, yeah, one of those guys, grown tells you what you're doing wrong. So I got this like kind of, you know, he obviously had that image in his head that a health and safety system or a health and safety person just goes around and goes, you don't have a fire extinguisher, mop up that spill, don't yeah, slip, yeah. don't fall, you know? And I think that's, that's far away from what, you know, I think safety professionals do, um, you know, and, we have this conversation about systems and even I have this conversation about systems in the fatigue risk management world or health and safety and I talk about safety systems, but it's really hard to clarify or define what an actual system is before we even talk about a safety system. So I'm interested to hear what you would, how you would define a system. Yeah. yeah. So you're absolutely right. And we need to be precise with these sort of terms, especially when we're writing about it. But um, now there's different types of systems, obviously. So normally like I, I consider myself for first and foremost a systems practitioner, but that's a socio-technical system, a complex adaptive system perspective. What I'm talking about in my work is uh, safety management systems. 
So they're the collection of practices and artifacts. So artifacts usually are written in health and safety. So we have you know, risk registers, risk assessments, JSA, SWIMS, procedures, policies, all that sort of stuff. But it's the, the, the collection of practices, beliefs, and artifacts that help us manage uh, health and safety. So they're the systems I'm talking about mostly when talking about these, this decoupling effect. Um, whereas socio-technical systems are vastly different, but interconnected type of phenomenon, or at least um, terminology around uh, these, this interaction between you know, people, artifacts, um, the activities we do, the organisational structures or even cultural structures, the tasks that we do, and it's all the way they sort of interact and uh, constrain and, and enable performance, so things that we do. But I don't think we need to get into the whole SDS. So, uh, no, but that, that's interesting, though. So, the socio-technic, what's that term? You use socio-technic? Uh, socio-technical system, yeah. Socio-technical system. So, they interact with the safety management system and sort of underpin it or contribute to it. Is that right? Yes. And it's just like a biological system. It's often yeah. used as a metaphor, biological system. It's all these different individual components that individually are important, but individually they don't really tell you the function of the whole system. So the heart has a very specific purpose, but you can't really study a human just by looking at the heart. You need to see how the heart interacts with, you know, the vascular system. Um, and it actually uses, uh, you know, it's got all these different functions that as a, as a whole describes a human. And it's the same with the socio-technical system to understand, you know, the work that we do or an organization or, or a society, we need to understand not just the individual components of it, but all the ways, all the different sub subcomponents the way that they all interact to, you know, create something, create performance or whatever. Okay. So if somebody's in a business at the moment and they're, you know, a little bit bored and they're listening to this podcast and they want to, you know, look up their safety management system for their business or they're looking online, what is a safety management system? What are the kind of key things that they would see that would, you know, be the components of that system if they were to, to Google something right now or if you were to put up a one slide at a, at a presentation or you were trying to get this point across in a couple of minutes? What, how would, what elements would someone see in a, in a good safety management system? Well, I think um, I think good is a very hard one to define. I mean, I think all the systems are going to have very similar components. So if talking about safety management systems, you could take a very, I guess, mechanical view of it, and it's you know it's procedures, it's um, yeah you know, training, it's investigation. You could see that as a safety management system as the structure of it. You could see the safety management system as including the the practices and beliefs and values, which then interacts with with the cultures and subcultures of an organisation. Um, I really think it depends on the context. I think we shouldn't really restrict ourselves to any one definition. There's multiple lenses we can apply. So I'd suggest um, if you're interested purely in, you know, a safety management system as it's, I guess, commonly practiced in uh, organisations, I would say that's a very limiting mechanical view of a system, you know, just as procedures and all that sort of stuff and training. It doesn't really give you the context of, um, like, uh, beliefs and, and values. All right. Almost certainly won't won't go into beliefs and values, but we know that uh, beliefs and values are heavily influenced by the group and the organisation and the subcultures that are in play, rather than yeah structures. So that's interesting, there, Ben, because a lot of people think like you know I have a system in place, it has X Y Z components, therefore I have a system and it works because I've kind of ticked the boxes and put these you know mechanistic um, mechanistic components in place. But what you're saying there is that 
whilst they might be important, it's they're not. We can't limit ourselves to having like these ten items, and that's the safety management system sort of ticked off. It can be those ten things. It could be five things, and it interacts with other parts, and it's not actually limited to a to a certain number or a or a, or a set system. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, systems are a social phenomenon. We we humans define the boundaries of systems. So, I mean, there are some very clear, precise things. Like, uh, just I had this conversation just recently around the definition of a fire. Like, there's a very precise chemical definition of fire, but you could easily, if you're investigating an incident of fire, you could easily classify classify it as a smolder because smolder doesn't sound as bad. You could justify that to yourselves and your and your you know your group that smolder is accurate. It may not necessarily be technically or precise, but it's 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 um, I guess it's it's close enough for people to sort of make sense of that situation. So yeah. humans define the boundaries of systems. There's very not always or very rarely very precise physical boundaries between different subsystems. So and that's the same with safety management systems. I think would you could easily argue it involves eight factors. You could say it involves just four critical ones. Um, so I think more important in the systems, and this is the, the as a systems practitioner, that's not the safety systems. Again, that's the socio-technical system where we'd be looking at the interactions between the components and how does the, uh, the whole system function and how do you yeah, yeah. shape the behavior of it. So an example would be um, training. So you put a training program in place and then you would expect the training to increase someone's hazard awareness, but you need to understand all the system components to it, the resources that have been put behind it, people's existing beliefs around their vulnerability to those types of hazards. And we see that in major accidents all the time that um, after the fact, it's very obvious what the, some of those major hazards were, but to people at the time, that, that was just a, one amongst 5,000 other issues that they had to manage and balance. And there was a lot of trade-offs around, you know, the resources and the time they can invest into it. Um, so, I mean, we set the boundaries socially. So another question, Ben, that people may have or a comment would be, you know, is the interaction of multiple systems that becomes cumbersome and difficult to manage. For example, let's take a mining operation. You got a mining superintendent or a mine manager has to run the mine production system, which will be, you know, a group of tasks that lead into um, a number of processes, which then interact and become the, the mining system, such as drill and blast, load and haul, deliver it to the crusher, for example, and then a subset of that might be the maintenance uh, processes where, you know, people are making sure the equipment is repaired and available at all times. But then to have the safety management system operating to the side as well, or on top of that, or integrated into it, however you want to you use that. They might have an environmental management system there as well. They might have, um, you know, legal yeah. and compliance, all these different systems kind of interacting and interplaying and sort of melting into one, it can become a bit overwhelming for people. Um, so how do you, or have you looked at how systems, sort of the touch points of these systems, how they integrate? And is that, a, is that an area where we should be more mindful about where these systems meet and kind of couple together to ensure that we're not doing duplication, rework, overwork, or having a lot of waste? Yeah, again, I think we're talking about different systems. So most of the examples you just gave would are very distinct management systems, like, you know, based on um, common safety management guidelines or the ISO standards based on codes of practice. Um, like they're very discrete management systems where they have procedures, they have policies, they have informal 
sort of routines associated with them. Um, if we're talking about the full spectrum, we'd also be saying about contracting systems, about belief systems that are in play. Like the, so absolutely, when you look at just the management side of it, as far as these systems we have, and you know, obviously now there's been a push for integrated management systems. Um, my main contention is, and this is what we're exploring in the research, um, absolutely it becomes overwhelming. But one of the things is that we're mostly interested in, and I'm really interested in actually, is um, if we're all sort of aligned that we're doing a lot of stuff and we're not really properly managing the hazards that are out there, at least we're cognizant of what the issues are and we know that we're no safer than we really are. My main issue is when we use these management systems, when we complete all the sort of the safety activities, we do the risk assessments, the risk registers, the you know the has has ID workshops, the safety walkarounds. When we do all this stuff, we believe that we're actually um, improving our management over those hazards. We're managing them better, and therefore our level of risk exposure is lower. But in fact, we haven't really uh, altered our objective exposure to those hazards at all, or at least we haven't as as much as we believe we have. So. Uh, we I call that decoupling. We, so there's a coupling between the level of safety that we believe we have versus the actual level of safety. I think that's the most interesting part for me is rather than just managing the systems and having troubles managing all these systems, we know that there's always been troubles and there's always going to be um, trade-offs between you know production and resourcing and time and all these sort of things. Um, it's when we mistakenly believe that we're safer than we really are. That's what the most interesting thing in my research is. And I, in fact, I've got an example in mining. So I've consulted to mining and oil and gas. I've worked in oil and gas, but consulted to mining on, on um, actually on a fatigue project. And they um, had needed an external person to sort of validate their fatigue risk assessment. And they provided, and it was, it was overwhelming. It was this vast spreadsheet mapped out to, at least two codes of practice on fatigue. So one from mining and also one from the general um, Safe Work Australia, everything you can think of. And I was reading through it and I said, this is really interesting. Like it's got everything you could imagine for fatigue, but not once have you told me what can actually kill people. Like why are you trying to manage fatigue risk in your business? And your risk assessments give me no indication of that. Um, so I said, yeah, can you just provide me a summary, like just a, a quick and nasty top 10 of things that either will kill or permanently alter someone's life or, you know, what, what, what concerns you about fatigue that you need to manage it? And I wasn't talking about health. Obviously there are health implications of chronic sleep loss, um, but for actual physical harm, um, fatigue uh, is, um, you know, it modifies uh, our hazard exposures. So it doesn't directly harm us physically. Health wise. Yes. Um, so, that's what I need to know. Like if I'm looking at this risk assessment, I need to know, put it in the context, like what is it that you're actually trying to avoid? Like if you're saying that um, people when they're tired after working consecutive night shifts will, um, will be at a greater risk of, um, you know, error when they're operating in a control room or if they're likely to um, not notice um, things in the environment, what's actually going to hurt them when, when something goes wrong? And that's what they couldn't provide readily. So I said, maybe fatigue isn't your problem. Maybe you just don't have a really great grasp over the work that you do and the levels of, and the sort of the, the hazards you have. And I know that's not true, literally. Like, of course, they understand the work that they do. Of course, they have some understanding of, of the hazards, but 
It was really how they could document, how they could actually explain it and integrate, you know, their safety approaches to better manage work. And that's, that's what they're there for. It's not there to be safe. They're there to do work. And the challenge is on us then to, to optimise as best we can at any given time, as much safety in that process as we can while maintaining acceptable, you know, reliability and effectiveness of work. And my concern is with those sorts of things, like those artifacts that we produce in safety, the things that we do, is by just by sheer fact of having that comprehensive systematic risk assessment, we would have believed that we were safer because, you know, it said everything. It said about cycling people through high risk activities or during the circadian lows. But I said, how's a supervisor going to interpret any of that? Like it's, it may as well be written in Russian or, or anything else. No one's going to be able to interpret that. You haven't even said um, like what's a, what, what is a hazardous task? When do supervisors need to cycle people through? Are we just assuming that they'll automatically know? Like they probably would if you pressed them, but we just have these assumptions around what our safety system is supposed to do. And I don't think it's always appropriately coupled to its ability to deliver on those uh, outcomes. Yeah, I think that's some really interesting points there, Ben, about ensuring that basically, you know, fundamentally you understand the processes of work. And that's all well and good, you know, if you have people who've been in those roles for a long period of time or experienced supervisors and so on, kind of intuitively will know these things. But if if you bring a new person in, and I always think that a test of a good system is bringing a new person in and seeing how quickly or, you know, how fast they can, they can adapt and understand that area. I think that's a real litmus test of of how, how good those systems are, whether it be from a kind of a management production system, whatever you want to call it. And how that interplays then with the safety system because you brought up a great point there is if you don't fundamentally understand the work you do and you're and you're kind of nearly like your mission objective how can you develop a safety management system to support that work because at the end of the day it's a business it's trying to make money it's trying to produce whatever x amount of widgets or provide a service and the safety management system should support that it shouldn't be i don't think anyway it shouldn't be some standalone document that is top down driven down into an organization for the sake of compliance i think it needs to be something that enables safe and effective um, and cost effective uh, operations so i think it's a it's an interesting take about instead of having risk assessments that just document document general sort of things that can go wrong um hypothetical controls that don't really offer much in-depth value it's all well and good if you have an audit like and someone comes along and doesn't really understand the subject but the question at the end of the day is that truly helping the person in the operation you know do their job sit more safely and effective and i think the answer to that in a lot of cases is actually no which is what you're alluding to here about having these kind of artifacts and i like that word artifact because it insinuates or you know it makes me think about indiana jones and something that's kind of lost and buried away and you take it out and you go wow look at this this is so good you know um maybe we should we should use that and in actual fact a client recently we made some recommendations through a diagnostic and the client came out then about three days later and went oh one of the guys in the operations found this document from like 10 years ago and i was like well, that's perfect. That's everything we've said, but it had been lost. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, that document just needs to get reinstated, right? But more importantly, all those things need to come back in. All those controls, all those things. Oh, they said they didn't do it because it was just too expensive. I'm like, well, that's going to be up to uh, you as a business to determine, you know, your cost benefit analysis. But everything we found in the diagnostic that was lacking is actually covered in that previous system. 
you know, so you've just kind of turned it off. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that, Ben, about, you know, this this system supporting the operations and how that works and if that's something you've seen yourself. Well, when you think about it, the the systems are supposed to be there to support people, but uh, often that relationship is inverted. We're just slaves to systems. We fill out forms, we do permits, we do walk-arounds, we have conversations because that's what we're told to do rather than it directly supporting uh, the behaviors of the system behavior that we're trying to get. So, you know, the widgets, we're trying to maximize the widgets in the safest, most cost-effective way possible. Um, the systems are supposed to be there to support us, but so often we, we're held hostage to them when we do these, these things that we just don't understand how they can directly impact on our work. And um, this really good work from like Griffith University around decluttering, trying to remove some of this excessive bureaucracy in safety systems and it does not, doesn't apply to safety it applies to everything but you can see it so much in safety where we'd have two levels of permits like we have a confined space permit and we have a, a subcontractor and we and we get them to fill out our permit but they also fill out their permit um, we have two levels of supervision that may not be required there's, there's all this stuff that uh, doesn't actually contribute to increasing the the margins of safety but we still get people to do it now we're effectively taking time away from them Putting more time into planning and being more, and you know, putting more time into effectively having safer, more reliable work. Um, so one of these principles really is around you need to make it as easy as possible to do the right thing and as hard as possible to do the wrong thing. Uh, and when I talk about work and that previous point about maybe they don't understand their work well enough, I don't mean it like in the most direct, literal sense around you know a, a welder understands how to weld. Um, there's obviously issues around particular hazards, you know, like in the process industries around. Uh, certain hazards that people just don't intuitively sort of comprehend, but generally people have a pretty good understanding of the work that they do. What I mean is, um, and particularly at the management level, there's all these external and internal factors that constrain and shape uh, our success and our performance in organisations. It's around um, contracting, resourcing, obviously budgets. um, And we're trying to manage a lot of these, these constraints all the time. Like it's, it's always a, uh, an ebb and flow. Um, so when we think about a permit to work system, again, I'll go back to permit to work. That one's, I think, fairly topical in my work at the moment is um, we need to repair or fix up a permit to work system. We write the procedure and then we do a bit of training and we're, we're all happy, pat each other on the back, but we haven't really looked at the factors that really shape how the permit to work system gets used. Uh, maybe it turns out that the permit system doesn't reflect the way that work actually gets done in reality. Um, maybe they don't have enough time or that they're resourcing. The underlying issue is there were, it was a very competitive tendering process and we picked the lowest cost contractor and there's been some delays and they haven't been able to recoup, recoup or put in variations for those costs. So they're having to cut, um, cut time and, and money and resources out of their work. Um, suddenly now the permit to work system isn't really about the procedure at all. It's about um, trying to manage all these constraints to actually effectively do work. And the permit to work system is just another barrier in the way of that. If we're not really optimizing the work and all the constraints that sort of shape the work itself, it doesn't matter what management system we have. And my work really is focusing not just on that, like that one's been really well documented in the safety science literature around, you know, there's a gap between workers imagined versus workers done. And that's saying that managers and procedures say that work happens via A, but in reality it's via B and there's a big gap between those two. Yeah. Um, yeah. The equipment isn't there that we've always said was 
going to be there. The controls have never done what we thought the controls were always going to do. Um, the training that we say is really important, we've never really resourced and never really checked and checked if it's adding value. So there's a big gap between those two. And my, my concern is, and my main focus is, that gap's really well known. It's when we have that gap that we believe that we're a lot safer than we really are. And in fact, our level of risk and exposure to sort of harm increases because we think we're safer than we really are. Ben, a number of years ago, I remember being in a discussion with a general manager and getting into a bit of a debate with him. And he he turned around, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because it leads into it leads into what we're talking about. He said, if we have an accident or an incident on this site, he says, because people choose to do the wrong thing. And it's as simple as that, he said. We have systems here. We have X, Y, and Z. So if you have an accident, you have an incident, it's all about choice, and you've just chosen to do the wrong thing. Whether it be a production incident, a safety incident, environmental incident, it's all about choice. As a safety professional, Ben, that's been investigating issues around safety systems and beliefs and culture, which are vast experience as well in, in business, well, what, what sort of retort would you have to that comment? How would you, uh, how would you tackle that comment? Because it is an interesting one that I've, uh, I often reflect on, and I wonder <laughs> what I should have said at the time. Yeah. Um, there's sort of, I guess, for me, two, two angles to it. There's the scientific research evidence-based response and then there's the very much tell me about it like why does that make sense to you why is it like what's been your experience that would lead you down that that pathway to believe that um so one answer is and this is the one i'm mostly interested in is understanding why it made sense for people to do what they did like people don't go to work to die and you see this all the time with these these initiatives where we get someone to write on a card and wear a sticker or something that says my top reason for not dying is my family and I want to play with my kids. Like, do we really need people to, to define that? Like people don't go to work to die. They go to work to do a good yeah. job. Almost everyone takes pride in their work. It's only going to be the exception where you find people that generally don't care. So if they're not following a rule, let's make, let's find out why it made sense for them not to follow the rule. And this is the thing when I go back to the other response I said was the scientific one. You could reasonably argue that 100% of accidents are due to humans because humans do all the work. We design all the machines. We install, maintain everything. Like we're involved somewhere at some point within the, the life cycle of everything, apart from volcanoes and, and uh, Godzilla strikes and things like that. There's only a few examples where humans aren't somehow involved. But that doesn't really tell you much about you know, the, the sort of underlying how. Like, how was it that people were involved? And when you actually look at quite good contemporary research, uh, and this is, this is not settled science, like this is heavily disputed between sort of behaviourists versus, I guess, I, I would be a, a systems practitioner, so behaviourists and system practitioners. We see behaviour more as an element of uh, the environment. So the environment really heavily shapes people's uh, underlying values, norms, perceptions and routines and behaviour. So the, um, sort of the first point is to really understand why it makes sense for people to do what they do. And the only way to know that is to go out and talk to them and understand the work that they do, the constraints that they face. There's been some really good, some really awesome research in this area, like in the um, Scandinavia, I think it was, in the rail industry. And there was a group of operators that routinely broke the rules. Uh, and now you could just say that, you know, we write them up for a, like a, a cardinal rule breach or a golden rule breach we train them on the procedures, which doesn't make sense because they understood the procedures to begin with. They're training them on procedures they already know doesn't make much sense. 
and then we go on about our merry ways and it still happens. What we haven't really understood is why they need to deviate from those rules to begin with. And it's such good research around this area. There's heaps and heaps of studies. So it looks, it turns out that eight, the procedures just don't really reflect all the work that they do. They're so abstract. They're written by someone that just didn't understand the work. Um, the procedures have such a long turnaround to be updated that they're always out of date and they rarely re reflect current conditions. They just don't add value to people. Uh, people can do their job without them. And this is a perfect test. You're talking about the litmus test before. It's a perfect test of the, of the functionality of a system. If you can remove it and nothing changes. Uh, and I think you could reasonably find if you removed almost any system, individual system from our, um, from our portfolio, it's probably gonna have very little practical difference because we hire good people to begin with. We don't generally hire terrible people that don't care and just wanna kill themselves and kill others and organizations. And if we did, and if, if all these incidents were due to just basic decisions by people, then to me, that's even more damning on us that we keep hiring these people. Isn't, doesn't that tell us more about what our, yeah. our failures are as an organization or in our process to keep hiring all these terrible uh, people that don't care make bad decisions i just don't think it's a i don't think it's a good explanation at all and it doesn't reflect the contemporary research now certainly there is a lot of research around behavioral based safety which has found you know um looking at uh behaviors of people and individuals but there's also a good body of research from like the social psychology perspective uh, from ethnography from cultural studies from anthropology it also looks at behavior as largely a or at least strongly influenced by you know the organizational and group level factors. And we look at psychological safety, safety climate, a lot of the safety culture research, it finds that most of these concepts are more related to groups and group beliefs rather than individual beliefs. That's, uh, that's I was just gonna say, man, that that's really I fully support that comment because that's that's I've seen that myself in different cultures, especially after being in a international role and doing international work. The difference between cultures like from Australia to Africa or Africa to you know Western European countries, it's vastly different. Uh, one one such one that comes to mind is um when somebody had had died in 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 Asia, you know, the the uh, manager of that area came back and said well, because we're Buddhist, it was just their time. And it was as if, like, you know, there was nothing wrong with somebody dying in the workplace. Whereas in Australia, we would be appalled. It'd be a major incident investigation where this person was like, I'm not sure what the problem is, really. Just culturally, like, it was really, really different from, you know, those backgrounds and beliefs and how they fit into the, to, um, you know, the system of work that we yeah. had, you know. So it was just, it was just, for me, it was a real eye opener. Or, in Africa, how people approach work in different ways, but that wouldn't be considered normal here in Australia. So for example, I remember one piece of work I was doing in, in South Africa, we were trying to work out, you know, sources of, you know, fatigue and the roster was all yeah. designed right and things were going all, all good. And we started looking out of, outside of the system of what we had at work. And it was basically what was happening on time off. And it wasn't that people were trying to do the wrong thing. But in Kuala Zulu Natal, for example, it's quite common for a man to have two, three, four, five, six wives and have families all yeah. around. So some people on their time off were trying to go and visit these families. Like one guy had 40 something kids, you know, and three wives. So, you know, we, we would probably like look at that and go, are you crazy? Or people would laugh at that. But culturally, that's what happens. So it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, these um, 
when you talk about from an anthropology perspective and sort of uh society perspective interface and then with with a with a system and how we work it's another you know set of contributing factors or complex factors that we have to consider so it's quite it's quite interesting i generally do believe that organizations are complex adaptive systems like i really think that there's a because we're humans generally aren't very comfortable with uncertainty we do strive for certainty so we we have a, a group of not just tools that we use, but definitely underlying heuristics and sort of mental shortcuts that we use to um, sort of create that level of certainty. And um, I think that sort of really heavily influences how we explain why things happen in organisations. And you're absolutely right about different uh, different national cultures around how they think about things. Definitely fatalism and lone helplessness are higher in particular subgroups and um, nationalities, or at least subgroups within nationalities. Uh, it's higher in construction, mind you, and also male-dominated construction. Um, learned helplessness is higher. The locus of control is lower, so people feel like they have less control over the environment. So I'm not saying that behaviour isn't a factor. I absolutely think behaviour is a critical factor. Absolutely it is. And sometimes it is up to individuals. It is individual choices. But also when you consider, like, construction, again, I focus a lot on construction, there's research, recent research that shows maybe around... Um, over 50% of workplace hazards may not be identified by people. And even more important, I think, than just the hazard itself, because uh, I think hazards are a very sort of discrete thing, but even you would uh, other research suggests that people just don't have a really good grasp over the whole sort of system level influences on the work that they do. So we, we know really well that what we do, and we know that we need if we need a particular tool, then we need to get that tool. But we don't have a very good grasp over the whole sort of socio-technical system, all the different things that are impacting. So uh, the upstream, the way that design influences safety. So when we consider that maybe 50% of people in construction may not really have a, you know, a systematic grasp over the types of hazards they're exposed to, when we consider that probably a lot of people don't have full visibility or what they call full rationale over all the factors that or the main factors that influence you know, the, the work that they do in an organisation. Uh, and we also consider that between 37% and up to 55% of fatal construction accidents have design as one of the primary factors. How can we possibly just fall back and say that someone made a poor decision when at least half of the known accidents construction in, in, in research has found that design, upstream design, was a major factor in it? Buttons doing what buttons weren't expected to do or control panels or, you know, or guarding on machines that just didn't function the way that people thought they would function, that people had mismatched mental models of how things operated. And I've found that across all these major accidents that I've studied in my research also, I'm hoping to publish this year, or next year, sorry. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we do that just doesn't do what we think it's going to do. And I just think it's quite a lazy and disingenuous explanation to say that it's just about people and about behaviours and about error because it ignores this massive bulk of research which suggests that in a lot of cases, there are a whole lot of cultural and, and structural, organizational structural factors that uh, shape performance and set up conditions where we increase you know, ha- potentials for harm and we remove the opportunities for people to do really good, safe, reliable work. And permits and uh, risk controls are part of the solution, but they can also be part of the problem. They can just m- make things more difficult for people to do good, reliable work. So then people are going to be more motivated to find workarounds that make local sense but they're not really aligned to the, the organization's view around, you know, like critical risk controls. Mm. Um, 
we need to make work easier for people. Um, and it's always a balancing act. There's always a challenge. You know, there's always ebbs and flows around uh, production and, uh, you know, cost and, and everything. Um, but yeah. we have to be focused on learning about work as our currency. Yeah, I think I think that's very important. And too often we see, you know, people um, in businesses getting caught up in the health and safety profession, writing procedures, writing JHAs, writing risk assessments for a task or for a group when, number one, they have no real idea what goes on out there. And, you know, they're just, they're just writing it for compliance sake. And number two, we're really is not is not being driven from, like you say, from kind of the cold face back. And I think that's a real challenge that we still have in the industry where everything kind of falls to the safety person, you know, and it becomes this kind of just, you know, write this, write this document, write this risk assessment, like I say, write this procedure. And it's not reflective of what's actually happening. And on the back of that, I think is exactly right what you said, Ben, is that every I think innately humans will look for improvements, you know, to use like Japanese philosophy, Kaizen, they're always going to look for those small yeah. incremental improvements, even if it's not related to making things, you know, more efficient, but making their life easier, so to speak, you know, people will innately always look for this kind of, um, you know, this balance, this homeostasis yeah. type of thing, or this less amount of work. How can I do the same job for, you know, get for less output? You know, I always say as well, I've always said as well, I'd love to see a trial in a business where we had 12 hour shifts and we incentivize people to go, right, we're going to let you finish at t- within 10 hours and you can go home two hours early. We're going to pay you the same amount of pay. However, we want production to be the very same as if it was on a 12 hour shift. But you can't do it like introduce any unsafe means. I guarantee you we'd have a hundred continuous improvement ideas on the table tomorrow mm. and to be implemented by next week because we provide an incentive, a drive, you know. And I think sometimes when we create a system or we create like hours of work or whatever it might be, or we provide a safety professional and we see a vast array of safety professionals doing different things in different areas or even in the same company, I think once we provide, you know, those kind of parameters, people just play the game to what's on the table. And so that's why I think there's so much so much difference, you know, amongst different organizations or different teams or different teams in an organization. So it's quite um it's quite interesting we get the variant around that. One thing I did want to ask you, Ben, about behavior is, you know, lots of companies have targets on let's say field leadership or safety observations or safety interactions. So for example, um you know, in high-risk industries, leaders will be expected, superintendents, managers, general managers, whatever they may be, will be expected to go out and spend a certain amount of time um, on the job site during a week, every day, and they might have a metric of, you know, five safety interactions in a week. You know, they've got to go out and speak to five people or go and visit five different job sites. And this has been kind of spruced or promoted as, you know, by having this safety interaction, we can talk to the people on the shop floor, we can get some safety improvements, we have visible leadership. Um, what's the current state, Ben, on that sort of work? It, it, does it work? Is it lip service? Does it have any benefit? Is it just a pain in the ass for the guys doing the job? Is it just a compliance ticking exercise? Um, are leaders really interested in doing it? Some, some argue that leaders should be out there more anyway. They shouldn't have a metric around it. Yeah. What sort of thoughts do you have on on would say the classic umbrella for what we call field, we'd call it like field like safety. Visible, yeah, yeah, yeah. visible leadership, yeah. yeah. Which I think is, I think it's quite interesting 
you know, that we, we say a visible leadership or I think like if we have to make that term, but anyway, I think leadership in <laughs> I, I, should have visibility in it, but that's yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. That's a really good yeah. point. Um, well, I actually just as a chance, I looked at the research recently around safety walkarounds and there, there's almost nothing. There's no, as far as I could find, almost nothing around the direct impacts of safety engagements, uh, particularly from leaders out in the field. But there certainly is a lot of uh, indirect research around safety climate, looking at the impact of you know leadership engagements and things, um, and then you can reasonably assume that if you're improving you know the safety climate, for instance, safety climate scores, that you might have more high levels of safety motivation, safety engagement. Um, my my thoughts are, um, the targets are always a slippery slope. Like I think there's a you know a phrase that you know once a goal sort of becomes a target, it stops being a good goal. Because you, you essentially you're talking about gaming before. If you have a target and it's tied to particularly financial incentives, like if you have a you know a CEO and the the, the board and the um, and the directors, if they have to get a certain particularly uh, injury metrics, they have to get under a certain level of injury metrics. Um, sorry, like a you know under five, and their performance is tied to that. Almost certainly, they'll get under that. Um. And the research has shown this and people know and find ways to game the system. And they're not necessarily just blatantly fabricating stuff, but I'll give you an example. I'll talk about um, fire. And again, the fire's got a very precise definition, but you can call a fire a smolder. That's a very social thing with negotiated definition. NASA had a similar um, factor with the 86 Challenger disaster. Um, and they had a, a turbo pump blade, so a, a fan blade, and their original definition of what a failure was was any level of like micro fracture on this blade, and over a long period of time, just very incrementally, nothing bad happened when they had these fractures. So the definition changed. So now it was like a fracture across half the blade was now a failure. And eventually, uh, before the the accident itself, the definition of failure was pretty much the complete destruction of the blade. These are good people doing the right thing as they saw it at the time, um, and I think it's an example of how we don't maybe directly always intend to game things, but we find ways to justify it because we humans essentially look for plausibility over accuracy when we uh, sense, when we, you know, sense make. Um, so we find things that make sense to us. It's plausible. It fits sort of our group norms and values. That's how we do things around here. That's how we believe things work around here. Uh, and I think it's the same about engagements when you set targets. Now for the actual doing the task itself, going out there and talking to people, absolutely. I think there's value in, We've seen that through other research, again, indirect research around like safety climate. And um, there is yeah, a number of studies that looked at that sort of factor. And also, um, I, I'm not big on, uh, there's this thing called the Delphi me method where you sort of get SMEs. So you, you could get a group of engineers or safety people and ask their thoughts to rank, you know, 10 activities, what's the most important. Uh, and this Delphi method's found that, you know, safety engagements, leadership engagements are one of the higher ranked factors, but I don't put a lot of, lot of weight behind those generally. I don't think safety people have a good grasp over working the constraints that we, we work under. Um, but absolutely going out and talking to people is critical. And a really good way to do it is to go out there and learn about the work that people do. And these aren't my questions, but these come from, you know, like this safety to safety differently approach. And I think they have some really good question sets for people to think about sort of these curious questions around, um, you know, tell me about your work. What's, what's one thing that makes your work really difficult? When did you have last have to improvise? Uh, What's, a, what's one thing we make you do as a rule that just is so stupid that it doesn't make any sense to you? 
or something we could get rid of. If we gave you $20,000 or $5,000 and you had to spend it to improve your work, how would you spend it? We can use these engagement sessions to learn about work, to improve the work that we're doing. Again, we're paying people to do work. It's our job to understand how we can best enable them to do really good, reliable, safe, safe work. Just simply throwing further risk controls into the, into the problem may not be a really good solution because we know that people, when they don't value or understand rules and why they're there, find ways to optimize their work, it's like local optimizations. Um, so I think there's a lot of value in these engagements and that visible, and I agree, it, it does seem a bit strange now to say visible leadership when visibility probably is a really critical factor in uh, leadership. But um, I think there's a lot of things that we can do differently to, to uh, improve the quality of the interactions and just doing more of things and just asking more questions about safety may not get you the insights you need. I think sometimes we do need to shake up the sort of questions that we're asking and ask better questions to get better insights. Uh, and I think work should be our, our currency that we talk about, not safety. It needs to be about work because safety is like everything else. Uh, one of the factors and, and um, one of the constraints and the enables the performance to enable work. So work needs to be what we focus on. Um, and ben, should it be seen as a positive though that people are, let's say, you know, making making changes on the fly, for example, or improvising on the task or improving as they go along? Because some people may argue that's like a learning organization. This is like a, a really good feedback loop. We see this in martial arts where people, you know, engage in a grappling, you know, scenario, which we've spoken on the podcast before. And they go, oh, that didn't work, so I won't do that. Or in striking, or we see it in the military, you know, um, in in military operations, when people do an attack on a, on a position, for example, they will regroup and reorg at the end of that section battle drill and they will sit down and will go, right, well, you know, they'll do a little reorg and they'll do a, before they redeploy and go to their next objective, they will do a very quick kind of results action review on the job and then move on to the next one. So wouldn't, shouldn't that be seen as a positive as well that people are doing that, even though it's not actually depicted in the system? Or should the system have more latitude um, to allow people to do this and build it back in. Yeah, this one, uh, if you go into LinkedIn um, <laughs> and you look at the posts around, this one is always contested grounds around the amount of decision latitude that we offer people, especially at the front line. Hmm. Um, there's no one answer here. You'll always get arguments for and against. Um, I'm more strongly aligned to the idea that rules are resources for action rather than things that constrain and guide performance. And uh, so I've got a current paper which has argued and looked at a lot of the literature and argumentation logic around this, this argument that, um, in fact, we believe that procedures and things do strongly um, uh, guide behaviour, but they don't really. Um, they sort of set up uh, the sort of boundary conditions. They set up some of the key activities, but the actual process, the routine of doing work isn't specified in the procedure. It's all up to people to negotiate at the time. Yeah. Uh, and we expect people to do that and they do it well 99.999% of the time. But that, that one time in a million or one time in a thousand um, that it goes wrong, we focus on that one time and say, why didn't you follow the rules? Say, well, I haven't followed that rule for the other 999 times and everything went well and it normally goes well. Um, but we don't really learn from all those opportunities when things went well. And I think that's something we do need to look at is not just success. We look at normal work. You don't have to wait for that one time out of a thousand when something goes wrong. You've got every other opportunity right now in your organization to go out and learn about work. What makes it hard for people? What makes it successful? What are the critical success factors that they need? What are the sources of variability in their work? And variability is a huge factor that I think needs to have more 
uh, more airtime in in health and safety around um you know to do a the permit to, i always go back to permit to work but the permit to work process isn't the procedure in fact my paper my current paper is the base sort of predicated on this assumption that or this this statement that um instead of like when we create um artifacts or when we do safety work we design artifacts when what we really wanted to do was change a pattern of action so what, what I'm saying is, and this was based on some other authors, a couple of authors, Pentland and Feldman, who work in this organisational routine area. But what they're saying is that instead of actually changing the patterns, the things that people do, we instead create a document, a procedure. And that's not the same. The procedure is not the thing that people do. Mm. Um, and this is what, so I've taken that sort of lens. So I've, I've recreated that and said that people create artefacts from what they really intended was to solve an operational issue. We want to we want to solve or we want to manage um, mine ventilation. So instead of actually addressing the underlying mine ventilation issues, we create a mine ventilation plan. But the plan is not the underlying issues themselves, um, and we can believe that we're managing the underlying issues when what we're really doing is managing the artifact. We're making changes to the document and tweaks to the document that really may not have any or or the the expected level of of change in in reality. And this isn't just a hypothetical. This is something that, like at Pike River, um, I argue in my paper that at Pike River, they were managing the, the system, uh, managing the documents rather than managing the underlying issues. And we saw this again at the SO um, Longford disaster in Victoria and also this other one, the San Bruno pipeline explosion in the US. Essentially what happened was, uh, in one sense, one interpretation was um, people were managing the system. They were doing the, the risk assessments. They are doing the risk calculations doing the forms and the walkarounds, but they are managing this system rather than the actual issues themselves. Hmm. So the, the systems became a proxy for the issues, but they're not the same. Um, and this is an opportunity when you go out there to learn about work is you don't focus on the procedure. You focus about what people are doing, what they understand they're supposed to be doing, whether they have what they need to do it successfully and safely. And what are we doing to make it easier for them or making it harder for them? And let's be frank, the systems that we provide people are rubbish most of the time. They don't support us. They make things really hard for us. Is it really any surprise that people are finding workarounds, local adaptations, when the systems we give them are complete crud and it doesn't support their work very well? I think that's a, that's yeah. a very obvious place to start is what can we do to make it easier for you? So Ben, uh, pe pe people would say then, right, well, if that's the case then, Ben, across multiple industries, what should we look at? Look, Who should we look to or what should we look at? to give us a guidance on, you know, a potential gold standard for safety management systems. Who, who does it really well? Like when we talk about leadership, people always, so, well, not always, but people are going about, you know, oh, the military does it really well. They've got this great leadership style. And then people go, what about innovation? Oh, look at Google and what they're doing, you know? So who do we look to for safety management systems? Who could we look at as a shining light in the sky? Well, I think um, I, can, I can take a punt at that and say that if you look at ultra-safe systems, then generally you know aviation and the nuclear industry are the the number one but um the, it's also a different environment it's very difficult to apply what they do in aviation to let's say construction mm. when you have you have whole teams of people that analyze data in in aviation and you have a plane drop out of the sky that's a really big event whereas you kill someone in construction and that's just another statistic unfortunately we can still continue working it's it's traumatic but it doesn't fundamentally shake up the industry like in aviation does and, and nuclear particularly had to increase the reliability of, of nuclear reactors and that and the management systems 
they can't afford to have like Three Mile Islands and Chernobyl's and, and Fukushima more recently. It causes a huge shake up of the industry. So they have whole teams devoted to doing all this sort of feedback loops and updating and training and improving designs and all that sort of jazz. Um, as for who does this well, I mean, I think we've got this information right there. You just need to go out and have a curiosity to learn. Um, it's not on your, it's not on the standard. It's not on your, on your clipboard. It's in the heads of the people that work for you. If, you. if you believe that you've hired the right people, then you need to go out there and start trusting them. And they call it this freedom within a framework. You set up the boundary conditions. And if we're talking about rules, um, again, there's no, this is very heavily contested. But rules should be a resource for action. It should support people to do the work that they need to do. It's not going to be a constraint on their behaviour, which it isn't anyway. It's a, it's a myth. Um, so um, David um, Boris, who published some work in this area in safety, he said that um, you know, there should be rules for rules. So there should be some guidance around how we actually use rules and where the flexibility can be provided on some of the rules uh, and where there can't be much flexibility, but they call it this freedom within the framework. You start the boundary conditions, you allow people to manage most of the stuff in the middle, best way they can optimise it, and you maintain performance or safety within that safety envelope that, that is hard boundaries that if something goes over those boundaries, really bad stuff happens. And they're, of course, metaphorical boundaries, but um, we need to understand where those boundaries of performance are. And that's very hard. And that does or can require some quite different ways to you know, measure safety and to think about safety uh, and, to, and to practice safety. I think that's a very long way of saying I don't think we necessarily need to look at any particular industry. I mean, you've got high reliability organisations that's now more recently been tested in mining with the Brady report, or at least suggested. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the, the option either. I think it, there's um, certainly interesting stuff around high reliability. There's resilience engineering and safety science that uh, I'm particularly interested in, but again, I don't think it's a silver bullet. Um, I think we need to come up with our own sensible um, learning, double loop learning approaches in organisations. And I think we start in our own backyards. We go out there right now and start talking to our people around what they need to do their work. And are we supporting to do that? Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, there's such a, there's such a vast array of things we're talking about here. Some are abstract, some are like practical, some are in the systems, some are in the research somewhere in different industries like it's just mm. it's just so many different factors you've got to consider um all at once you know yeah, and yeah. It, it's just you know and then there's the whole thing about luck and like as you were talking there about that i was just thinking about um i don't know if you follow formula one but last week there was a pretty significant crash in formula one for the team the Haas team and one of the drivers roman grosjean um he crashed into the into a barrier like in the very first lap and the car exploded basically like explode into a fireball and the car broken too now anybody who watches formula one that hasn't happened in a long time um years ago if somebody was in 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 the cockpit there of that car that, that would have been dead it would have been instantly incinerated but because of like the the safety system now in the car with the the kind of this like nearly like a shell in the front of the car that the kind of a camera to have a word on it, like a safety shell or a I can't remember exactly what it was anyway, but it's um, it's like this little kind of cocoon that they're in nearly. And then they've got this halo bar across the top. Then they're in like four layers of, you know, fireproof and safety clothing. So the front of the car broke off, hit a barrier, 
um, car exploded in two parts. The front part of the car was melted into the barrier. Um, the halo stopped the fence from going in. So it was like a hard control or an engineering control, which drivers argued against a few years ago. So you could say like, you know, for example, uh, well, in, in our conversation there about people making changes or getting feedback from, from people, a lot of those drivers were against the halo, but um, the halo came in. So that's, that stopped the fence coming in on top of them. The layers of fireproof clothing, you know, helped them not to die, basically. He jumped out. Of it. He somehow managed to get out of the top of the car whilst it was ablaze. You could you Google this if anybody wants to see it. It's pretty shocking, like, how he got out. And then, but what was pure luck was, on the very first lap, when the race starts, is that behind the pack, when they start, the 20 cars, there's a medical car with a driver and a doctor that goes around for the first lap on the start. And it just so happened that they were, because he started at the back of the grid, or the back of the pack, whatever you want to call it, and that medical car yep. stopped, and it was the driver and the doctor that got out and were the, were the first to fight the fire and then help him get out of the car. And he had burns to his foot, his left knee, and his two hands. And he's okay. He's out of hospital today, but obviously a lot of psychological issues with that being in a fire. He even said publicly he thought he was going to burn to death. Um, it's pretty frightening for him. But there you've got, like, you know, safe systems in design. You've got, you know... PPE as part to play there. You've got a thing there that drivers didn't want, but ended up coming in as a kind of a, a rule or a engineering control with the halo. And then you've got pure luck with the people starting behind um, in the safety yeah. car as well. So like, it's just so hard. I think someone is to design a perfect system that's always going to capture everything, eliminate every risk, and you can't account for you know crazy shit really that's just going to go wrong on the day sometimes as well. Like. People, even the commentators, like, we haven't seen this in years. This was crazy. And the car just clipped another car and went straight in. Like, it's just, it's crazy from a kind of an investigation piece to put it all back and, and look at all the factors. So I think this conversation we're having today, Ben, is very difficult for people to sit back yeah. and go, oh, this is what I should do. So if you've listened to this podcast with me in bed <laughs> and you're like, right, these are the five things I need to do, you've probably come out with more questions and answers than I know I have. And I, I should I, have more questions, though. I'd suggest yeah. that we need to have better questions and we need to have things that prompt to have better questions. I think. Yeah. And I think that's, 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 that's the thing, Ben. I think like when you start delving into topics like this or start researching stuff, it actually gets quite frustrating because you do have more questions than answers. And the more people I talk to in different industries, the more consulting I do with, with businesses, the more research I do with other people and with students, the worse it gets. Like it's just, it gets more and more like frustrating because there's more and more questions and more and more complexities and difficulties. And I under I completely empathize with people in the, from a in business because trying to do this kind of like here's the solution. And I know I asked you the question about the gold standard, but it's probably a leading question. But it's it's so difficult, um, you know, so tif- so difficult to do. That the reason why said- I didn't want to answer that question is um, <laughs> I'll give you a very specific example from my current study. Is no doubt there's particular uh, accredited systems that probably are the most comprehensive for like management systems. Uh, my main concern though is um, like at Pike River, there was a belief that their system was world-class based on, you know, best international from Australia. Um, at SO Longford, there was a belief that their system was also based on the best international, which it was. The thing was that the systems just couldn't do what they, people thought they, they could do. You could have the best gold standard system and it still won't deliver on what you think it is because it doesn't have yeah. the right understanding is too complex. It doesn't support people. It's not valued by people. Um, 
that's why I think we you just start where if you want to get a, a learning from my diatribe would be focus on what you actually want to change rather than what you don't want to happen. And to do that, the best place I think to start is to go out and talk to the people doing the work. And it's not about throwing rules away. Absolutely not. But, you know, your example from the Formula One is a really good example of focusing on the right problems. Um, a driver having a crash and then not burning to death is probably one of the major issues for them to manage. One of the things that they yeah. um, really want to ensure is managed really well so that you have your rules and your systems and your information and your training revolved around those few key issues. There's only a few things that really will kill people in most organizations. That includes the process injuries, like top level hazards and energy sources. So you need to put most of your efforts around better understanding, learning about those and supporting our systems to help manage those issues. The freedom within a framework can really be applied to a lot of the other stuff that we don't have to have specific rules around, like the color of PPE and all that other bollocks. Like it, it doesn't support people. Um, and you could tell me, uh, you know, you could argue black and blue that you have this systematic system that goes through everything. I'm sure you do, but you're probably investing far too much time in things that won't kill or permanently alter someone's life. And at the end of the day, that's what we ethically need to be doing. We need to be relentless with our management of these issues. And to do that involves relentless pursuit to learn. We have to have open minds that we can learn and we can update our beliefs. And I think safety systems and practices and beliefs can really be a barrier there. I think we get so fixated on having a gold standard system from the, you know, later, like for ISO 45,000, like now is going to be the, you know, the gold standard for health and safety, but that system can't fix underlying organizational issues. And to do that, you need to fix the underlying issues and learn about them. And I think that's a great way to finish this conversation. Um, yeah, I, I've got about 50 different lines here of questions that we'll have to get into more podcasts with, which we can uh, uh, we can do on another day. But Ben, if people want to follow you, follow your work, um, how can they follow you? Are you on LinkedIn, ResearchGate? What sort of platforms do you use? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn, I'm very or fairly active. I usually post one or two studies a week. Um, I try and be a fairly agnostic with it. Like I'm very strongly from sort of this safety to this adaptive view, but try and be very agnostic. I share research from across the board. Uh, I'm also on ResearchGate. I've got one of my conference papers there, which I sent to you, Ian. Um, if you want to fall asleep, I recommend reading it. Um, if you're a glutton for punishment, I recommend reading it. No, I, do, I, I disagree. <laughs> I actually found it very interesting. You've got some great terms in there about fantasy systems and drift systems, which we didn't even get into today, which was some of the talking points, but I think we probably did indirectly. So, um, uh, we'll provide a link in the show notes for people to access that. I think it's very interesting. It, it's um, it's kind of thought-provoking, you know. Um, I've sent it to a few people already, so I think um, I think it's definitely um, it's definitely of interest. So yeah. So you're uh, on well, research. If wanna, yeah. If if people want to jump on LinkedIn, um, just shoot an invite through. Um, yeah. The best way to keep up to date with what I'm posting. I love to learn from other people, so I'm always uh, trying to expand my network. Excellent. Uh, anything else, Ben? You'd like to add um, anything? We. No, I think I think that's enough. Yeah. Look, that was a that was an excellent conversation. I really enjoyed that, and um, thanks very much for coming on this morning. Um, we'll definitely have you on again. I think this will be a podcast that people will be interested in. And like I say, I've got about fifty questions here that we need to go through in another day. So we'll uh, we'll probably schedule a part two for this uh, sometime in early twenty twenty one. I don't know if I've, what I have to say is interesting, but I do have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate the time. It was, it was great to come on and have a chat to you. 
Well, look, Ben, I enjoy talking to you. I don't really care about anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's that. All right, thanks, Ben.